The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. A number of years ago, I got up to preach uh, what I consider to be one of the hardest sermons I've ever preached. Very different kind of text than I'm going to preach today. It was the beautiful, magnificent, soaring doxology at the end of Romans 11. That's where Paul has unfolded 11 chapters of the doctrine of the gospel. And he ends by celebrating the greatness of God with this incredible doxology. Says, oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. I remember feeling the weight of the text saying, I don't think I have the oratorical skills, the exegetical, the homiletical skills to rise up to such an incredible text, especially with its joyful tone, its celebratory tone, and its celebration of the wisdom of God in the gospel. I thought it was beyond anything that I could do. Well, this morning, as we look at Revelation 14, 9 through 11, I have an opposite kind of problem. (coughs) Same kind of thing, though. As I look at my own emotional state, even right now, as I look at my experiences, I cannot, I cannot portray for you, I cannot capture in the right words or the right emotions or the tone of voice the weightiness of what we're going to talk about today, which is hell as eternal conscious torment. What the Bible clearly teaches is true. I've prayed for it. I've prayed that God would enable me to speak in such a way that you would feel the weight of the truths that there are in Revelation 14. 9 through 11, that God would open your heart and your mind, that those of you that are outside Christ would be warned and would flee to Christ while there's time. I prayed for that. A number of years ago, I don't know when, uh, I assisted in a funeral for an African-American woman. We didn't know her well. I don't remember the exact circumstances. I don't know who she was. I think she might have been the grandmother of one of the young people that was involved in our urban ministry. They asked if they could do the funeral here and if I would participate at a certain level. I think reading some scripture, making some comments. Didn't know the woman very well at all. I didn't know her at all. But it's a tradition, I think, in in some African-American communities at funerals to have a time of testimonial. And they would just stand up and say things right right there. And so that's not our, our pattern in funerals, but it was for them. And they asked if they could do that. I said, sure. And... I'll never forget this as long as I live. This woman stood up, and it was the sister of the deceased. And she began with these clear words. Not everyone who dies goes to heaven. Wow. Could have heard a pin drop. My sister didn't love the Bible, didn't love Jesus, didn't go to church. I can't lie. I have no great confidence that she's in heaven right now, but we're still alive And the funeral is a warning to all of us to flee to Christ while there's time. And she sat down. I was convicted by that. I don't know if I would have been so plain speaking. But I resolved that if I had the opportunity to preach the gospel again at a funeral, I'd try to make it clear the basic message that funerals are a warning to all of us. That it's appointed to each one of us to die. And after that, that's interesting words, isn't it? After that, to face judgment. And the outcome the Bible reveals is one of two destinations. It's heaven or hell. And the text that we're looking at today describes hell. It's one of the most challenging doctrines that there is in the Bible. The idea that a righteous and holy God would consign people for eternity in conscious torment. This doctrine may be for some the very reason that Many turn away in disgust from Christianity and from the Bible. They can't imagine a God that would do such a thing for sins that were committed in 
in space and time by finite people and infinite punishment. For me, I don't think I would even have these thoughts. I wouldn't have any conception of hell if it weren't for the scripture. The scripture is what teaches us about these invisible realities. And I've come to understand Hebrews 11.1 1 in a, a little bit different way than many do, but I think it's based on, on what the Greek words say there. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And in my mind, but also the conviction of things not seen. And the word conviction has to do with, with something that brings you to a point of realization of your guilt, of your sin, and the weightiness of it. That's what the word means. So faith has both a very sweet, positive, alluring side where we're looking ahead with hope to the good things that God has promised us, but also we're able to see into the invisible spiritual realms the threat or the warning that there is there as well for us as sinners. And it is by faith we can see these invisible uh, spiritual realities. More and more people are turning away from the doctrine of hell as eternal conscious torment. It's an uncomfortable topic, I understand that. In 2015, in an interview, Pope Francis, the leader of the Roman Catholic Church, seemed to say that he leaned toward annihilation for the lost sinner. The interview went something like this, what happens to that lost soul? Will it be punished and how? The response of Francis is distinct and clear. There is no punishment but the annihilation of that soul. The soul would cease to exist. All the others will participate in the blessedness of living in the presence of the Father. The souls that are annihilated will not take part in that banquet. With the death of the body, their journey is finished. Well, obviously this topic is one of the most difficult for all of us to face, but we have to face it. And Revelation 14, 9 through 11 enables us to understand in part what the Bible teaches about this. Ironically... I believe that a healthy, biblically-based meditation on hell has the power to make Christians happier than they've ever been before. It's, a, it's ironic, it's a paradox, but it's really true. The more you meditate on what you deserve but have been delivered from by Jesus, a number of things are going to start happening. Your thankfulness to God and to Christ will greatly increase. Your perspective on your own present sufferings will, will be helpful. And you will turn away from the kind of murmuring and complaining that I just mentioned in that video a second ago. And you will live a life of great joy and gratitude to God for what he has done for you and delivering you. Honestly, apart from understanding this idea, this doctrine of eternal conscious torment, the word savior or salvation doesn't mean much. The words imply a grave danger, don't they? We don't use it for some minor help that someone has given to us. And so apart from understanding this grave danger, we don't need a Savior, we don't need salvation. But the Bible teaches we do need a Savior and we do need salvation. And praise God, it's available through faith in Christ, even right now. That today is still in that realm of that day of salvation that God has offered to all of us. So... In order to do this, I want to get this, these verses in context. We're in, right in the middle of the book of Revelation, a book which unveils the invisible spiritual realm, pulls the veil back, and we can see, above all, Jesus Christ, the glory of Christ. But we can also see the future. He sent it to show his servants what must soon take place. So it tells us the future, and we've been walking through chapter after chapter, and, and we're in a section now in which we have come to understand the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms, the dragon, Satan, who has a, a vigorous hatred for the people of God, the saints of God, and who is presently attacking them and accusing them day and night, but who in the future, his hatred for and his attack against the people of God will greatly escalate. And he will, he will bring forth his masterpiece of deception, the Antichrist called the Beast from the sea in Revelation 13, spoken of in various places, never the word Antichrist in the book of Revelation, but in First and Second John, that's the word, substitute Christ, one that takes the place of Christ. Second uh, Thessalonians 2 calls him the man of sin, or the man doomed to destruction. The book of Daniel makes it plain, the little horn, others, other titles for him. This, this will be a world ruler 
and take over all the world. He will, according to Revelation 13, miraculously survive an apparently fatal wound. And having come back to life so it will appear, will, will win the confidence of the world. Said in the context of the uh, seven trumpet judgments, Revelation 8 and 9, in which the ecology of the earth is absolutely ravaged. And uh, all the green grass is burned up and a third of the, of the trees are burned up and a third of the ocean is turned to blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea dies and a third of the water, uh, fresh water is poisoned. Uh, we can imagine uh, such a state of upheaval among the, in the geopolitical realm that leaders will emerge and eventually this one uh, leader will come and take over the world. And it says in Revelation 13, 7 and 8, he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. So not only will he have control over the military and the government and all that, but he will be the focus of worship. He will be worshipped. Revelation 13 also uh, reveals a powerful false prophet called the beast from the earth who will lead this new worldwide religion of worship toward the Antichrist. And he will establish, he will build or create or craft a miraculous supernatural image in honor of the beast, in honor of the Antichrist, an idol, that he will then use the machinery of the worldwide government, the police state, the demonic police state, to compel worship. And at the end of Revelation 13, we have these words, he was, he the... Uh, beast from the earth, the uh, false prophet, was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. Now, Christians, those whose names have been written from before the foundation of the world in the Lamb's Book of Life, will not partake in this false religion. They will not bow down and worship the idol. They will not receive the mark of the beast. And so they will be the focus of the Antichrist's persecution, of his hatred. And he will kill many of them. He will wage war on them and he will win for a short time. The book of Daniel says he will kill many of them. Now, that's the context of Revelation 14. Revelation 14, in the middle of the chapter, we have these three angels that you heard James just read about. And these three angels are sent one after the other to warn the people of planet Earth the grave danger of the judgment of God, which was imminent. The first angel in verse 6 and 7 says this, I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the Earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him the glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. And then immediately came a second angel. Who cried out, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon is that system of, of, of human culture and government and, and society that's united in rebellion against God, following the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Fallen is this system, this Babylon the Great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And now we get to the third angel who's the focus of this sermon this morning. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. So the people of that time, the final generation that will live on the earth, will, will be under extreme pressure 
to worship the beast in his image, to receive the mark of the beast in order to buy or sell. There are positive inducements because the Antichrist will be a compelling figure who will have to some degree rescued the world from economic disaster and the inability to to eat or drink or even to survive under the judgments of God as depicted in Revelation 8 and 9. And so they, they will have an affection for him anyway, but he's an incredibly skillful, devious speaker and politician and is attractive and compelling in his speaking. And more than that, he is able to do signs and wonders. Not only his own resurrection from the dead, apparently, but other demonic signs and wonders. And so that's positive inducements. But then negative inducements, if you don't receive the mark, you can't buy or sell. And beyond that, they will put you to death. And you think about a police state with supernatural powers, demonic powers, satanic power, powers to hunt down the dissidents. So you have overwhelming compulsion at that point to bow down and worship. And so there would be a great fear that would be on the people of the earth, a fear of the Antichrist and of the police state and of the government. But there is a greater fear by far than that, infinitely greater. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more to you. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. It is not right for pastors or evangelists or missionaries to say, I don't want to scare people into heaven. I wouldn't mind scaring some people into heaven today. I would be very delighted to scare some people into eternity in the presence of our Lord. Jesus didn't seem to mind scaring people. He said, you need to fear a God who can destroy you forever in hell. You need to fear him. Don't fear humans. Don't fear, fear the government. Don't fear those who can torture you and kill you. Fear God. So God is forcing a choice. And he's warning the waverers, perhaps even among the Christian church at that time, those who are wavering and want to cave in and feeling that inducement, feeling that pressure, don't do it. Fear God. Be willing to die for Christ. <clears throat> now, as I said last week, this shows a powerfully decisive spiritual act on your part to receive the mark of the beast. It's not inadvertent. You don't stumble into it. There aren't, you know secret operatives of the Antichrist or ninjas that are coming in at night and lo and behold you woke up and you got the mark. It's a conscious decision that you make in terms of your own will and your own heart to worship an idol. And notice also that the angel says if anyone receives the mark he too will drink of the wine of God's fury. The word too is interesting to me. There's one of two possibilities I think. First is from the second angel, they're already drinking from the wine of the adulteries of Babylon the Great. You drink from that, you're also going to drink from the cup of God's wrath. That could be the word too. Or it could refer to the many, many generations of the damned that had no opportunity to receive the mark of the beast either way. Because they died long before the beast came uh, on the scene. But they are going to receive the exact same torment as those that do receive. There's only one hell. And so it could be that the word too means that. So, how does the angel describe hell? Look at verse 10. He too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. So to drink, the image here, the metaphor, is one of taking completely into yourself. Absorbing. Drinking in. Absorbing, being immersed in. <clears throat> and the drink is described as the wine of God's fury. So the idea of wine is that it influences your mind and your heart. And wrath is a, a vehement, hot, passionate reaction on the part of God. It's strong. Fury could be more like a long-term indignation. A smoldering memory. That God has of a lifetime of rebellion. So it's, 
It's long-standing, historical, and intense and powerful. And used together, they greatly magnify the impact. God is raging like a burning forest fire or like the sun. And this has been settled in his mind for a long time. God is patient, but at some point his patience ends. Also notice the strength of it. He will drink what has been poured full strength. The wine of God's fury poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. Nothing is held back at all. So it's... it's, uh, it's undiluted. It's not mixed. You know, in the ancient times, they would mix wine with fruit juice or water and dilute its impact. It would be weaker in its impact, lower in its impact. This is full strength, maximum impact. For me, it's, it's staggering to comprehend the omnipotence and omniscience of God combined to focus on the destruction of an individual. Like a laser beam focused down on a single individual to the end of their destruction. It's terrifying. Nothing's scarier. There's nothing more terrifying than that. And in verse 10, a further description really with a simple prediction. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Now, I have one more of these types of sermons to go when we get to Revelation 20 and describe the lake of fire, but I think that's what it's talking about here, the lake of fire. And notice also that the torment is constantly, it says, tormented with burning sulfur or with fire and brimstone, similar to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the torment is constantly, it says, before the holy angels and the Lamb. That is Jesus Christ. So there's an audience watching the torment. Here the audience is angels and Jesus. So what that tells me is that there's no squeamishness about this among the angels and Jesus. There's no sense of shame or embarrassment about it at all. There's no pity. And it's not going to be done in a corner. God's not, as I said, ashamed of what he's doing to them any more than he was ashamed to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. Or ashamed of destroying the ancient world with a flood. The punishment of God is a righteous display of the holiness of God, the justice of God. He's not ashamed of his justice or holiness at all. I do believe that Isaiah 66, the last verse of the whole book of Isaiah, points to another audience and that's us. And it says in Isaiah 66, 24, And they, the redeemed, will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, neither will a fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. So that would imply that the redeemed are able to see it as well. Which makes sense, because why would God hide it from the children? Because we can't handle it? By then we can handle it. Because God's ashamed of it? We already covered that. He's not. He wants us to know. I believe in Revelation 21.4 it says there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. So they will observe it without any crying, without any emotional pain at all. No anguish. Our experience in heaven will not in any way be diminished by knowing specific uh, of the damned. Or all of them. If anything, you know what it's going to do? It's going to feed your thankfulness. And your humility. And mine. We're going to realize we all deserve to be there. The only difference was the grace of God. And we have in verse 11 plainly the eternality of hell. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This is the hardest part of all for many. Eternal conscious torment. The fact that there is absolutely no escape in the future. Like the song, Amazing Grace, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Well, a mirror image of that is the same as true in reference to hell. No fewer days after 10,000 years. There is no future escape. The escape is now, right now, today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is the time to escape. So this is Revelation 14, 9-11, and a brief unfolding of the doctrine of hell. 
Now it's beneficial for us to look a little bit wider and try to understand more of what the New Testament teaches about hell and how we are to understand it. Wayne Grudem says hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon that Greg Fox, I think, alluded to a moment ago, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, 1741 sermon, probably one of the most famous sermons of all time, some would say infamous, get to that in a moment, but he said this, O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are now in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it, ready every moment to singe it and burn it apart. And you have no interest in any mediator. You have nothing to lay hold of to save yourself. Nothing to keep off the flames of wrath. Nothing of your own. Nothing that you have ever done. Nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment more. Now, Edward struggled with language to try to describe this reality. And English literature classes in secular high schools across the country go back and study it as literature and they go through these things and debunk it perhaps or mock it to some degree. The question we have to ask is why did he struggle with these images, with this language? John Piper says this, what high school student is ever asked to come to grips with what is really at issue here? If the Bible is true, and if it says that someday Christ will tread his enemies like a wine press with anger that is fierce and almighty, and if you are a pastor charged with applying biblical truth to your people so that they will flee the wrath to come, then what would your language be? What would you say to make people feel the reality of texts like these? Edwards labored over language. He labored over images and metaphors because he was so stunned and awed at the realities he saw in the Bible. Edwards believed that it was impossible to exaggerate the horror and reality of hell. Piper continues, high school teachers would do well to ask their students the really probing question, why is it that Jonathan Edwards struggled to find images for wrath and hell that shock and frighten, while contemporary preachers try to find abstractions and circumlocutions that move away from concrete, touchable, biblical pictures of unquenchable fire and undying worms and gnashing of teeth? If our students were posed with that simple historical question, my guess is that some of the brighter ones would answer because Jonathan Edwards really believed in hell, but most preachers today don't. There is a natural human repugnance to this topic. Mark Twain compared the Jehovah of the Old Testament to the Jesus of the New. And he said, it's a, it's a misunderstanding to think of Jehovah as a fire-breathing, wrath-filled God, but Jesus is gentle, meek, and mild. That's what Mark Twain said. Jesus was a thousand billion times crueler than ever Jehovah was in the Old Testament. Meek and gentle, by and by we'll examine that popular sarcasm by the light of the hell which he invented. Charles Darwin said this, I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. By the way, if I had a chance to talk to Charles, I would say, whether you wish it to be true or not, it either is or isn't. Your wishing isn't going to change anything. But anyway, let me continue the quote. I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, my brother, and almost all of my best friends, will be everlastingly punished, and this is a damnable doctrine. Clark Pinnock, a Canadian theologian who has strayed far from his evangelical roots, said this, I was led to question the traditional belief in everlasting conscious torment because of moral revulsion and broader theological considerations, not on scriptural grounds. Do you hear that? I just have a predisposition against this. It's not that the Bible doesn't say it. We know it does. 
It just does not make any sense to say that a God of love will torture people forever for sins done in the context of a finite life. It's time for evangelicals to come out and say, and he calls it the biblical and morally appropriate doctrine of hell is annihilation, not everlasting torment. Sadly, even John Stott, who in every other respect was a faithful expositor of the word, was drawn in by this. Why? Well, because of this. He said, emotionally, I find the concept of eternal conscious torment intolerable. And I do not understand how people can live with it without either cauterizing their feelings or cracking under the strain. And more recently, Rob Bell published a book called Love Wins. A hopeful title. Subtitle, A Book About Heaven, Hell, and the Fate of Every Person Who Ever Lived. Kevin DeYoung summarized it in this way. Here's the gist. Hell is what we create for ourselves when we reject God's love. Hell is both a present reality for those who resist God and a future reality for those who die, listen to this, unready for God's love. Not quite ready when you die. Huh. Hell is what we make of heaven when we are not ready to accept the good news of God's forgiveness and mercy. So that if they're not ready when they die, they won't want to go to heaven. But hell is not forever. God will have his way. How can his good purposes fail? Every sinner will, in the end, turn to God and realize he has already been reconciled to God in this life or in the next. In the end, love wins. Well, the Bible doesn't teach these things. Jesus Christ, it's true, taught more clearly and voluminously on hell than anyone else. I think he did that because he came to drink it for us. He came to save us from it. And before that, he came to warn us of it. He said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that if you even say, you fool, you're in danger of the fire of hell. He also went beyond that to talk about lust. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who even looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, then gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one hand than to have two hands and to be thrown in the fire of hell where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. I'm going to come back and talk about that more at the end of the sermon. Matthew chapter 8, 11 and 12. I say to you that men who will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Parable of the weeds and the wheat. Matthew 13, 41 and 42 ends this way. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all those who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And the rich man Lazarus, Luke 16 Verse 23 and 24, the rich man in hell where he was in torment looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger into water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. So from this and other passages we get the doctrine of hell. First of all, the purpose is punishment for sin. Both sins of commission, things that we did and shouldn't have done. And sins of omission, things that we should have done and didn't do. So, Revelation 21.8, it says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. But then, note the sin of omission in the sheep and the goats teaching. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in, etc. Sins of omission. 
What of the percentages? Well, in Matthew 7, Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I don't know how to translate many and only a few, but the overwhelming majority, it seems, are on the road to destruction. It is likened to a lake of eternal fire. We'll see that later in Revelation 20. Some say these are metaphors. Well, metaphors for what? Metaphor is just a word, and the experiencing, the hearing of the word is always a lesser experience than the thing itself. So there's no escape saying it's a metaphor. Furthermore, and this is so important for our, our unsaved friends who think they want to go to hell because all their friends will be there. Well, it may be that the people they knew in this life as their friends will be there, but they won't be friends in hell because every good and perfect gift that anyone's ever experienced comes from God and all of that will be pulled away. All of the things they think they're going to experience with their friends in hell, they'll experience none of them. All of the common grace blessings of joy and celebration and happiness and all those things and the sensual pleasures that they lived for and they traded their souls for, none of them will be there. So it says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. Listen to this. Shut out from the presence of the Lord. There's a shutting out aspect. Doors closing in the faces of the five foolish virgins. And they knock on the door and say, open to us. And he said, I never knew you. They're cast out, shut out, thrown out. They're separated from everything good. So the next time you're sharing the gospel and somebody talks to you in a very lighthearted way about hell and they'd rather go to hell, please explain to them these truths. We're responsible to tell them the truth. And it is conscious torment. We already saw this in the rich man and Lazarus parable. He was aware of where he was. He knew his own history. He remembered. Abraham told him, remember that in life you had all your good things and Lazarus had nothing but bad things. He was aware that he had brothers that he wanted to warn. He was regretful about things. That's conscious torment. And it's everlasting. The fire never goes out. The smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. It's a place of regret. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth, it says. And utter darkness. I think we need to refute a foolish statement that I hear often. God doesn't send anyone to hell. What do, we, what do they mean by that? I think it's made by evangelicals who affirm the reality of hell, but they try to protect God from it. Like God needs protection from hell. Well, it's not really God that sends anyone to hell. Really what's going on is they go there of their own free will, and all their lives they've chosen to go separate ways from God, and God is just in the end giving them what they've always wanted. Do you not understand how that doesn't line up with the things we're learning here? No one will send themselves to hell on Judgment Day. When the reality of how horrible it is is revealed, they have to be tied hand and foot and cast there by the angels. And that's, many passages teach that. They are cast outside, tied hand and foot. No one willingly goes there because they'd rather go there than be with God and with the saints. All right, that's the doctrine. How can we apply this to our lives, to our hearts? Well, first, obviously, this is a motive for fear and repentance. It's a motive to come to Christ. We should not despise this as a motive. It is right to flee the wrath to come into the arms of Jesus. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. It should lead every non-Christian in the sound of my voice to flee to Christ now. You don't know how much longer you're going to have. I was reading this morning a sermon by D.L. Moody on hell. And this uh, deacon in the church was asked by a, a particular sinner, in the, this is in the 19th century, who was coming out of a saloon, getting on his horse, how far is it to hell? He didn't know what to say. Well, the man rode off and the deacon turned around and walked away. And then he turned back because he heard a noise and the horse reared and the man fell off the back of his horse and broke his neck. 
very short journey for that particular man from that saloon to hell. This very morning, as I drove here, I mean, these things, you never expect what's going to happen. Very bad accident, and we were probably the second car on the scene. Probably it happened 90 seconds before we got there. A man was holding his chest, sitting a little bit heavy set, sitting off to the side, worried about his heart condition, but he said it was the seat belt and the airbag that got him. His left front wheel was completely severed and just all by itself with, the, with like part of the axle and a bunch of grease. So I, you know, wheeled that out of the road and just sat with him until the police and the ambulance came. I mean, he didn't think that would happen to him this morning. I didn't think it would happen to me that I would get to be there and talk to him and pray for him. He was on his way to Rose of Sharon Church. He's a believer, the man I was talking to. I didn't get a chance to talk to the other car. I mean, we don't know how long we have. So this, this is an inducement to flee to Christ. It's an inducement to flee to Christ, to run to him. Jesus died on the cross in our place that we might have eternal life. Hell is eternal, but it's escapable. And all you need to do is turn away from your own goodness and righteousness and good works and in faith, repenting of your sins, trust in Jesus. See him as your savior. I, I don't know what language I can use, how I can plead with you to say, don't put it off. Don't think that you need more information. Don't be afraid what your unsaved friends will say. Don't fear anything. Today is the day of salvation. Today's the day. But if you've already done that, you've already fled to Christ then do you not see, as I've already mentioned, how this should be an infinite source of gratitude to God for saving you? This holy God, who is a consuming fire, has shown himself to be the father of the prodigal son and has reached out to you and welcomed you back and forgiven all of your debts. And there is for you, therefore, now no condemnation since you are in Christ Jesus. You should forever be thankful to him. And, and I'm not wanting to be harsh here at all, but I'm just going to say it's one of these, if the shoe fits, wear it. If this is you, then, all right. If you've been complaining about your bodily aches and pains, stop it. God has delivered you from hell. I'm not saying don't seek help from a doctor. I'm not saying don't take your medicines. I'm not saying any of that. We're not Christian scientists after all. At any rate, I'm saying stop complaining, stop murmuring about your aches and pains. Don't let them dominate your mind. You have been delivered from hell. And stop complaining about your temporary financial setbacks and difficulties that you're facing in the financial realm. You've been delivered from hell. And stop complaining about your feelings of isolation and rejection and loneliness. You may be feeling isolated. You may be lonely. And there's some things the church of, of Christ could, can and should be doing for you. But let me tell you something. You have been delivered from an eternity of isolation. You're going to spend eternity in heaven. And I, this is hard for some of us. But there are not going to be any introverts in heaven. There's, there's no recluses in heaven. We are going to be very social there. So you've been delivered from the ultimate isolation there could ever be. This doc doctrine has the paradoxical power to make you eternally happy. I remember one uh, musical version of, uh, of Chris Dickens' Christmas Carol, Scrooge, with Albert Finney. In the, the third ghost shows him basically himself in hell. He's going to be in hell. That goes beyond anything Dickens wrote. All the, that ghost showed him was that he's going to die. And he seemed shocked by the fact. At any rate, someday you're going to die. No, say it's not so. I don't know what Dickens was thinking. At any rate, in the musical, they were showing him in hell. And then he woke up and the night was over and it was Christmas Day. And he's hugging his bedpost and he's like, wait a minute. I'm not in hell. I'm alive. And then he just started going nuts, lavishly doing good things to as many people as he could find. And I don't think that's inappropriate. There should be a surge of joy and happiness and energy in you when you realize what God has done for you in Christ. You're free from condemnation. Live to serve others. All of your needs are met. Thirdly, you should worship Christ for his courage. Just Go, like the hymn says, go with me to dark Gethsemane. 
as he's recoiling from a cup. You know what the cup is? This is the cup. We studied it this morning. It's the cup of hell. And the father was offering him the cup of hell there in Gethsemane. And Jesus said, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And if it is not possible for the cup to be taken from me, may your will be done. That, I tell you, is the most courageous and loving act any human being has ever done in human history. And the more you meditate on the torments of hell, the more you'll see the courage of Jesus because he drank that cup to its bitter dregs for you on the cross. Fourth, this is a motive for personal holiness. I touched on this last week. I touched on it early in the sermon. I'm going to return to it. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that if you even look at another who's not your spouse, you've already committed adultery with that person in your heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, then gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Here's the question. Is fear of hell a valid motivation for Christians to be holy and not sin sexually? Jesus would say yes. Now, if you can't figure that out theologically, don't worry about it. Flee sin. If something in your life, some aspect of electronic entertainment or pleasure or internet involvement is causing you to sin, cut it out. It's better for you to cut it out than to go to hell. And if you think, you know, I can, I can go to hell like this, do not be deceived. Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. And he says very plainly, Ephesians 5, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, such things, God's wrath is coming. Therefore, do not be partners with them. So yes, fear of hell is a proper motivation to specific steps of practical holiness that you need to take. Fifth, sorrow for the lost. You are surrounded every day by people who Jesus said are on that broad highway to destruction, to hell. Ask God to give you a vision, a revelation of what that is. What what does wailing and gnashing of teeth look like? What can you do to speak up and and to be grieved? Paul said, Concerning the unbelieving Jews, Romans 9, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of the unbelievers among the people of Israel. And if you're not there yet, just be honest and say, I don't have much of a sorrow for the lost. Not like I should. God, would you work in my heart so that I grieve over the actual spiritual destination of those who are outside of Christ. And then, obviously, that should move you to zeal and activity and evangelism and missions. Years ago, Hudson Taylor was speaking at a missions conference. He was a great missionary in the inland regions of China. And he's trying to motivate complacent Scottish Christians who are sitting in a large church to get involved in the mission to China. And he told them a true story, something that had happened to him while he was in Ningpo, China. He was on a junk, a boat there, a coastal uh, boat. And he met a man who had spent a little time, a Chinese man who had spent a little time in England. And he had the Western name Peter. And this man had not come to Christ yet. He was very interested in the gospel that Hudson Taylor was sharing, but he was also struggling with depression, struggling with discouragement. And he did not make a commitment to Christ. And sometime, a short time later on that same trip, he fell overboard. Fell overboard. Hudson Taylor knew of it almost immediately and called out to some Chinese fishermen who were fishing with a dragnet. That was exactly what was needed. And he called for them to come over and fish this guy out before it was too late. The Chinese fishermen called back saying, it's not convenient. He said, don't speak of convenience. Someone is dying. They wouldn't do anything. He said, I'll pay you. They said, how much? He said, I'll offer you the equivalent of five dollars. Not enough. Then he said, I'll give you everything I have in my pocket. He said, how much is that? $14. They agreed to come. 
Within a few moments, they fished the guy up, but it was too late. They couldn't resuscitate him. As he told this story, the Scottish Christians that were listening were utterly indignant toward the Chinese uh, fishermen that had such a callous attitude. He said, but you're acting like the, like the body is worth more than the soul. What about we who have the gospel message and we are able to deliver people from eternity in hell and we do nothing because it's not convenient? Evangelism and missions will never be convenient. It's always going to be costly. So I would just urge tomorrow when you're at the workplace or you're at college or you're interacting with somebody, share the gospel, talk to somebody, get into a spiritual conversation and warn them of the judgment that's to come. And also, let's be faithful as a church to support missionaries that are on the field right now through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, through IMB. Let's support them financially. When the needs are greater than ever before, the cost of having missionary units on the field is greater than ever before. We as a church need to be faithful and sacrificial in sending missionaries to the ends of the earth. Close with me in prayer. Father, this is a, a, a difficult, a deep, a sobering topic. And I pray, Father, that we would be able to feel the weight of the truth of these things in Revelation 14, 9 through 11. That we would not shrink back from it. That we would understand that Jesus drank this for us, that we might have eternal life. And that we would give him thanks. And, Father, that we would give you thanks for sending your beloved son. And pouring out your wrath on him, our substitute, our lightning rod, that we might be delivered and protected. Father, I pray one more time for any that are here who walked in this place unconverted that they would believe in Christ while there's time and trust in him. Oh Lord, I pray that you give us a greater zeal than we have ever displayed before for evangelism right here in the Raleigh-Durham area and then missions to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.